Welcome, everyone. Uh, this podcast is part of a collaboration between the Washington and Sydney iGEM teams. Um, we're doing this collaboration because we realized both of our projects have a strong focus on at-home diagnostic testing technology. Um, so the Washington team is working on a genetic test for cutaneous melanoma, and the Sydney team is working on generating novel nanobodies that could be applied in rapid flow assays. Um, so we're planning on discussing some of the impacts of diagnostic technologies in the context of um, the differences in the healthcare systems in both countries. So we thought that the, the applications of our tests might look really different in um, our two different countries, the US and Australia. So we'll start with some introductions. So I'll let the Washington team introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Owen. Hi, I'm Chloe. Yeah. Um, and, and the Sydney team. Uh, yeah, so hi everyone, uh, I'm Lukian. And hi everyone, I'm Jess. Um, and I'm Sylvie, despite my American accent, I'm on the Sydney team. I'm a bit of a transplant. Um, so I'm acting as the sort of moderator because I have um, some experience growing up in the US and experience living in Australia as well. Um, and before we get into it, um, I would just like to do an acknowledgement of country. So we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands where we are living and working on today. Um, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation here in Sydney and the Duwamish, Puyallup, Suquamish, Tulalip, and Muckleshoot Nations in Washington and their elders past, present, and emerging. So um, we'll start off by um, just giving a comparison of the healthcare systems in both countries. So both of our projects have applications in diagnostic testing. Um, so one of the biggest differences I think that most people know about when it comes to healthcare in Australia and the US is the cost to the patient. So um, Owen, do you wanna give us an idea of how healthcare costs look in the US? Right, so we've got some fun numbers here. So Australia is actually pretty fun. It has it, it's about average on healthcare spending. So Australians spend about um, 56, or sorry, yeah, $5,600 per capita. And Americans spend more than double that. We spend about 12,000 on healthcare. Uh, a lot of that goes into uh, like admin costs. So it's not actually going towards care. The US actually tends to have slightly worse health outcomes than other developed countries like Australia. So we're getting less bang for our buck. Part of that is- Why do you think that is, Owen? So part of that is um, unlike almost every other developed country in the world, the United States uses a, a system that relies almost entirely on private health insurance. Most of that provided through people's employers. Um, we do have a little bit of state provided insurance. We've got Medicare, which covers folks over 65. And then we've got Medicaid, which provides um, some support for people with low incomes, but that's also managed by each individual state. So it's, it varies widely across the country. And so all this variation makes the cost of actually providing healthcare really high, not even the, like, not even the cost of like actual treatments and doctors, but of just like managing all the paperwork. So 
we have become a country of paperwork in our healthcare, and that's not super great for the outcomes. And with things like Medicare and Medicaid, um, do they cover sort of like, can you expect to walk into every clinic um, and know that they're going to be covered by that sort of thing? Or can you expect every clinic to be covered by the same insurers? How, how does that really work? Right. So that that whole network of um, systems means that a lot of uh, a lot of providers don't actually take they either won't take your insurance or they'll take your insurance, but then they won't take other things. And so the system is very patchwork. A lot of places will take things like Medicare, but some don't take Medicaid. Um, since our project is focused on melanoma it is good to note that Medicaid is actually taken only by about 16% of dermatology clinics in the US. And so a lot of that specialized care like dermatology can't get coverage for. And both the, the coverages provided by the federal government don't cover stuff that's like called cosmetic surgery or anything. They're like, oh, you don't need that, then they're not gonna pay for it. So there's a limited range to how much the system's even gonna help you out, even if you have insurance that should cover your care. Mm. And if I might, you said Medicaid was the one for elderly or was it Medicare? Okay, yeah, so this one, very fun to keep track of. Medicare is for um, retired people. It's limited Bye. to the over 65 or folks with disabilities. Medicaid is just for people with low incomes. Yeah. It's simple. Yeah, which is slightly confusing because in Australia, our um, national like government health insurance is also called Medicare, but that's, that's for everyone. Um, so there's a bit yeah. of, I guess Medicare is just too good a too good a, a word to um, <laughs> Luke, yeah, <laughs> to let one country yeah. have Australia. Yeah. It's a bit yes. different. So we have Medicare, which is a pretty good system, I would say. So if you're an Australian citizen, New Zealand citizen, or a permanent Australian resident, you're eligible for Medicare, and that means that most basic medical services are covered so we have what's called bulk billing so if you're bulk billed by your doctor and that can be so gp specialist them anything medical means that it's entirely covered by medicare and it means you don't have to pay for it so generally when you sort of arrange a doctor's visit you can ask them if they will bulk bill or not which gives people sort of the option to shop around and find places that will bulk bill um, and obviously that makes things pretty like it means that people aren't scared to go to the doctor because they're worried about the bill they're going to get, especially with GPs. I'm not sure what it's like in America, but in Australia, GPs is just your general practitioner. And if there's ever anything sort of slightly wrong with you, if you're feeling one way, you just go, you just go straight to the GP. Yeah. I mean, from my experience living in the US, I know that um, a lot of, there's a really high number of people that avoid going to kind of preventative care visits or, or visiting a doctor for minor things just because of the, of the cost. Um, so I think there's a bit of a different culture, at least here in Sydney, um, of you know, being a bit more proactive in preventative care. Um, I think the big but thing. But I, I also know that. Oh. No, Lucian, you, you want to go? Yeah. Well, I was okay. just. Well, yeah. 
Uh, like with <laughs> as well, okay. if, if, you, if you ever go to the hospital, like the emergency um, department is free. So if you yes. broke in the leg, if you stepped on a nail, you're not yeah. like desperately trying to fix it at home. Like probably, you know, at least once a year, I hurt myself enough that I go to the ED, I wait for a couple hours, it gets dealt with, and then that's it. And there's no cost like it's just done yeah i wanted to ask since owen mentioned like a lot of our cosmetic certain things aren't like covered like are there any like gray areas to medicare in australia or is this like most things are genuinely covered by your um healthcare policy um so yeah similarly things that are deemed cosmetic won't be covered um one interesting controversial thing is dentistry so the dentists aren't covered. So I think they've considered, I guess, the rest of your body more important than your teeth. Um, not really sure why that is. Um, it is good. We, you can get referrals for a lot of things, um, like for specialists that do get rebates. Um, but yeah, melanoma or skin cancer um, dermatologist side referrals, I think that might be a difference in the way the two countries view um, skin cancer because that I think is definitely not going to come under cosmetic mm. surgery in any case in Australia like it's taken very, very seriously um, yeah yes um, so yeah the Washington team's project is um, focused on developing some at-home genetic testing for uh, melanoma so I think it would be interesting to compare um, the process of um, investigating maybe a concerning mole, um, which which you are concerned might uh, be cancerous. Like, what would be what would be the process of uh, getting that looked at in um, in Australia? So in terms of like, so the Cancer Council is a big. Um, organization in Australia, given how much skin cancer we get and how big of a problem it is, like we're constantly, I think like the big thing is prevention is a huge deal in that we're constantly bombarded with wear sunblock, wear a hat, don't go outside in the middle of the day. Like it's, it's sort of, it's hard to be ignorant about skin cancer. So I think a lot of the sort of, and similarly, a lot of like the onus to test is actually put on yourself so if you go to the skin cancer council guide they basically just give you a big list of instructions of this is how you test yourself for skin cancer these are the things you want to look for um because it's just skin cancer is so common that if you went to the doctor every time you sort of saw a mole um doctors would not have time to see patients ever so it's a lot of it is like you have to be pretty sure that you have it and then you'll book in to go see a GP. They will sort of either go, no, you've got nothing to worry about, or they will look at it and they say, yeah, that looks like it's probably skin cancer and they'll refer you on to a dermatologist. Yeah, mm. I think, yeah, especially the part about um, the onus being on the individual. I think there's um, a lot of focus put into public health measures and education wise and allowing empowering individuals themselves to be able to um 
yeah, I guess look at look after themselves in that regard because everyone is at such a high risk, which I think from what it sounds like, your project kind of fits into that sort of picture, right? Um, that's sort of the kind of thing that you want to do with your testing the states. Yeah, how would that, were, were there any parts of that um, process that would differ in the, in the US? Um, I would say that generally it's about the same type of process. I mean, like here we do go to like a general doctor if like you're concerned and then they obviously will refer you to someone who, like a dermatologist or someone that could further check it out because they're not specialized. But I think that most of it is not as like a screening for melanoma, at least in the US from my experience and what I've heard is that it's not as prevalent. It's not as like pushed in order to like, oh, go check the moles or, um, you know, really take care of yourself in that aspect to make sure you don't have any type of skin cancer. So I think at least with our project, trying to push that um, emphasis on getting tested and having more people just kind of self-aware of what the possibilities could be if they don't get certain emotions checked out. Um, oh, and if you want to add on to that. I think just what you were saying about the individual like responsibility component in Australia is interesting because America likes to be like, we're the country of individual responsibility. And that's <laughs> how it goes. That's how it's going to keep going. I think that Australia, there's at least, there's like this responsibility, it sounds like, put on the person to like, oh, you got to go check for melanoma. But there's also like a hand to like sort of guide you and be like, hey, so this is the signs for melanoma. Here's what you need to do. And they, there's a path forward. It's just on the person to just sort of follow the instructions yes. and be generally careful. Whereas in the US, there's pretty much no public awareness about melanoma and then that's paired with a healthcare system that's very different place by place and the the insurance nonsense we were talking about before has it has a fun contributor because you you're going to need to get a referral to get any coverage at all and then sometimes you can't even if you get a referral get covered if they don't take whatever your coverage is especially that that's going to be like medicaid or something like that you might just be just out of luck and so that whole process means that people have to invest a lot more time in getting diagnosed for melanoma and also a lot more money just because healthcare costs more here and so together that really creates a disincentive for people to actually be like i got a mole let's do something about it because if doing something about it, it's going to take you like 12 hours to overall to get it mm. done that's a real barrier to actually getting any treatment I think I think a big thing in Australia is even if like it did cost so much, even if it was 12 hour commitment, like people are sort of are aware of how dangerous it is and are sort of scared enough of skin cancer that they will like drop everything yeah. to get tested. Because I know that I think it's two thirds of Australians get skin cancer over their lifetimes. And I know that that also sort of differs a lot. So for example, I surf, and surfers are six times more likely to get skin cancer. I believe 90% of surfers get skin cancer over their life. So if you're someone wow. who goes outside a lot and if you have that risk, like you're, if you see it, you're going to go deal with it immediately because everyone, I think basically every Australian knows someone who's had melanoma, like being seriously ill from melanoma. Maybe the Washington team needs to head up the surfing community and reach out yeah. to them. 
Fortunately, in Washington, if you want to go surfing, you got to wear a full body wetsuit. So you're not going to get any sun at all. <laughs> I think Maybe even, down even the coast of California. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. In California, I think you do need a wetsuit too. Well, even, <laughs> even with a wetsuit, I know that a lot of the, a lot of the like surfers I know, you look at the, sort of their arms and their legs and everything and they're fine. And then you look at their hands and their face and they've all had 20, 30 mm moles dug out you can just see like scarring all over people's faces and hands because those are the parts that aren't covered yeah one really interesting thing with the australian like uh, skin cancer prevention thing that i noticed because i um i did about a year of primary school in australia having done most like i grew up mostly in the u.s but um when i went to primary school i think it was year five um whenever you went outside you had to wear a hat like yeah. it was mandatory like you had no to wear like flag. a really wide wide brim hat um and that was just not a thing in the u.s at all like you i guess you could wear a hat but like they didn't it wasn't it wasn't this like overarching very strict rule that you had to wear a hat at all times when you're outside um i think that's that was like Teachers yeah, walk a very big difference in the like attitude. Get sent inside if you don't have your hat because if you don't have your hat yeah. on, like you, you can get like detention for repeatedly not wearing your hat during lunch time. <laughs> yes, and so there are all these little uh, primary school kids wearing these giant like wide brim hats that you would just never see in the US. Um, Luke Young, so some in in a in a country where like in a country where this preventative um attitude really isn't present like who who do you think would most benefit from this at-home skin cancer testing like who's your target target demographic i think the short answer is pretty much everyone the mm-hmm. now that it's not the people that need it as everyone right so the definitely uh well-off folks are have a lot more um treatment for skin cancer and mortality is a lot lower. The um, really unfortunate part of our system is that if you're uninsured and or you, you are two times more likely to be diagnosed with melanoma late after it has progressed to the point where the mortality rate is a lot higher. So the hope would be that a rapid test that someone can take would really help folks where it's hard to gauge that risk of, well, is it worth spending all this time and money Mm. or not? And so that's really the hope would be for folks that are uninsured or folks, it's really hard to get to a dermatologist. And so rural rural parts of the country in particular, really, it might be helpful to have a um, rapid test. There was um, like having access to dermatology is really important. And so if you can motivate people to go and like get access through a test that can be really helpful. Like one really, really shocking statistic that I found is that um, there was a study that looked at um, counties in the US and they found if you compared counties that had one dermatologist versus no dermatologists, that in adding one dermatologist reduced mortality from melanoma by about 35%, which is a big reduction. That's a lot. One dermatology clinic. Mm. So having that access really can actually change outcomes. Yeah, that that 
point you made about like the risk calculation that's that something that is like quite mind-blowing from the Australian perspective that you have to kind of sit there and actually assess how bad it is um and to see if you actually want to go and expend the exorbitant amounts of money I guess but yeah and what you said about the rural side of things I think that is probably where Australia is like our hole in our safety net I guess because like I looked into this a little bit and 92% of dermatologists in Australia work in um, metropolitan areas and people in the more rural and remote areas have higher rates of skin cancer but not only that they're also more likely to be farmers and outdoor workers who are exposed to more UV radiation than those living in the city so I think definitely if we were to talk about your test being applied in the Australian context I think if your test could be something that could be mailed out to people in that sort of remote area where you would have to travel really far to go see a dermatologist, that would also actually be really helpful, even in the Australian context where awareness is already so high. Yeah, I think as well, like the, the US does have rural areas, but um, Australia has like huge parts of the country are just completely inaccessible. So the few people you know the what five percent of the population that's scattered across or less i think like less than five percent of the population that's scattered across the the middle bit is so far spread out so much more than you would see in the u.s so yeah australia has does have um a big probably more of a more of a problem getting like that kind of preventative care specialist care to people in really remote areas like even in those areas you were talking about like the difference one dermatology clinic makes like it really you really wouldn't be able to expect dermatology clinic in every single one of those towns so something like your test which like if it could be like mailed out without a person having to go along with it like I think that would a massive rollout of that would be yeah it would be really really helpful Mm. yeah um and so the the sydney team our our potential application for our project is this uh, a method for easily developing new rapid antigen tests so um our our product is more of a method than it is an actual product but the potential um application could be making a multiplex rat test sorry a multiplex rapid antigen test that could um that could tell you which strain of COVID you have or um, just developing new rapid antigen tests for new diseases quite quickly. Um, but how do you think that, um, that do you think that would be applied in, in a similar context as this um, melanoma test? Can I jump in with one quick question? And that is for yes. the people like me who are kind of maybe not the brightest, what does the word multiplex mean? And what, what is the benefit of Yes, sorry. I, that's that is probably a bit of a jargon word. So a multiplex assay, a multiplex rapid antigen test would just be um, instead of one test line. Like normally on a on a rapid antigen test for COVID, as we've probably all seen and taken, there's a there's one control line and there's one test line. So instead of one test line that just tells you you know yes or no you have COVID, um, there could be multiple test lines that could yeah. identify the the particular 
strain of COVID that you have or any other disease. So it can test yeah. for multiple antigens in the same test. Yeah. So the, the, that sort of multiplex text test test um, is uh, currently often clinically applied to differentiate between different other sorts of infectious diseases. You've got like multiplex PCRs that can differentiate between um, different strains of fungal diseases, for example, cryptococcus. Um, so it would really be taking that sort of application and bringing it to something that, like, I guess we are positing that could be something that an individual could take home and do um, themselves. Yeah. But yeah, how do you think, maybe Jess, do you want to give a little bit of a, of your thoughts on how that, um, a, like more more diverse yeah. range of rapid antigen tests could impact maybe rural or um, low income populations. I think yeah yeah I think um, not even like the multiplexing but the just the ability to generate that sort of self diagnostic or not quite diagnostic but um, take home testing like quickly which is the sort of method that we're um, generating quickly and at a low cost. I think really does have a lot of the same principles in terms of access for those living in remote areas. Um, and also for, in the Australian context, um, indigenous communities. So um, there's been, during the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a decentralized point of care testing model introduced in indigenous communities for that COVID-19 response. Um, just to explain this a little bit, the point of care is really rather than having to go to a clinic and then get your test sent off somewhere elsewhere or um, go to someone and get referred to another specialist, the point of care model is at the point of care with the individual that you are seeing. They are doing the test and you are getting the test back. Um, and that testing model saw like huge success. And I think um, take-home tests is sort of almost a variant on that sort of point of care model um, where you've got the same sort of advantages of being able to reach um, more remote areas that are perhaps more isolated. Yeah. Um, obviously though, that being said, there are some caveats, um, especially with the context of COVID-19 testing. Um, I know Australia had some trouble sourcing our tests. Did you guys... What was, what was it like over in Washington um, for testing and approval, I guess? Yeah, we've actually got a, a fun little a local story about the, the testing and approval process in Washington State. Uh, so our, our team in Washington iGEM is based at the University of Washington, and there was a professor there named Helen Chu who, when the, um, the, the COVID test was, or the not the COVID test, the, the COVID pandemic was really starting to get out of control. Uh, let's see here. She was running this thing. It was called the, and I want to make sure I get this right. It was called the Seattle Flu Study, and they were collecting all these swabs to test people for flu. But then suddenly well, there was like this bigger problem than the flu. And so they, they went to um, the CDC and were like, hey, we've got this um, test for the COVID antigen. Like, I know we, we know it hasn't been approved yet, but we want to take these samples and test them. And 
basically their answer was absolutely not you can't do that don't tell us like valuable information about epidemiology and the spread of this virus <laughs> know nothing about they said you've got to follow the rules and they so there was like, a, like they went through a couple rounds but eventually um the seattle flu study was like we have to we have to test these samples and so they started testing them with this um this uh antigen test for covid and they found immediately that oh wait the, the, there's these folks that have covid and like they're going to school they're going to work they're going to wow. worship and this is a potential hazard to people's health and so they went and they they called the washington department of health and like hey we have these people you need to tell them that they could potentially kill other people and the cdc response was absolutely knock that off right now you can't do that we've got rules and part of it was because they weren't certified as a clinical laboratory. Part of it was because they hadn't right. people sign a waiver when they were making collecting the samples originally, but all this paperwork added up so that there was this massive delay in getting testing. Yes. And unfortunately, there was a um, there was a carve out in the rules because folks saw this and they were like, we want to make sure in a pandemic like COVID that we're ready. And there's this thing called the emergency youth authorization. And the use author authorization was set up so that you could get your test approved quickly. But unfortunately, the one test that they did approve was the CDC's own test, which they passed out, and then it turned out it didn't work. And so there was this massive delay. There was false test results. The correct test results weren't allowed to be used. And it really, really was quite a mess. Yeah. Wow. Um... That sounds like a bureaucratic nightmare. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Just... That's about all our reactions. <laughs> oh my God. It's crazy. Speaking of the bureaucratic nightmare, um, <laughs> uh, I know like obviously from that story and I think from my knowledge of like um, testing approval, like, regulations of at-home testing can be a little tricky, especially because at-home testing, like especially like the rapid antigen test approach, and I think this genetic test for melanoma has like lower lower accuracy, gives gives higher rates of false um false positives or negative results um than the like standard like pathology testing. Um, how do you think like if if your if your test has lower accuracy, how do you think it it fits into the wider healthcare system? Like, do you do you think that it's still they they still have a place despite their lower accuracy? Okay, so yes, that was too. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I can't I can't speak to your guys's project, but I can say at least for ours, we ran into the same problem where we were very worried about the potential for false positives, and so. What the solution that we came around to was to pair that with um, artificial intelligence that would use um, images of the melanoma from a like a dermatoscope quality, which is like the little thing that dermatologists use to look at your skin cancer on your through your phone through a special lens. And so our proposed solution would pair that with like another thing, and then the goal would also be instead of giving a um, like a, you got it or you don't got it would be to pair that with something that's a little bit more like qualitative and assessment of risk. And 
that sounds like something that your guys is your multi your multiplexing test sounds like that would yeah. be good at that correct if I don't know if that's true though does that sound right to y'all um I think like the the issues that exist especially with the with the COVID rapid antigen test will still exist with a multiplex rapid antigen test probably more so because there are more variables to go wrong um but I mean my um thought on it, it will it will definitely have lower accuracy than something like um a pcr test just because pcr is so so accurate and can act on such a small um a small sample as um we've discovered through using pcr in the course of our project you can you can put one one cell into a pcr tube and have the um have and be able to um amplify genes inside that cell so um yeah, I don't think any kind of antigen test will ever be as accurate as that, but the rapid antigen testing still really does have a place, especially in the pandemic, but could have a, a similar, could hold a similar place for other diseases um, where screen, getting getting a, a really, a pretty good idea of whether or not you um, have this infection is still really useful, even if it's not, you know, 100% accurate. Um, I think the thing so with- I think, I think that's, Sorry, yeah, I just I think the thing with like the take home tests is people will actually do them. It's so much better than nothing because a lot of the time, even in Australia where like we have Medicare and things are free, people are just lazy and they're in denial and they don't want to go and get tested for things when they're so true. Like the I I think even me like personally, I can remember times where I probably should have gone to a doctor and I went, no, it's fine just because like there's so much you have to sit through and then you have to wait and it's stressful and it's better to just like, you know, pretend it's not there, but with a rapid test, which you already have at home, you almost don't have an excuse. Yeah. But it takes away that, that just that little barrier. And then once you, even if there's a sort of high rate of false positives or negatives for the people who get a correct result or even a false positive, it'll sort of inspire you to go and make the next step because it sort of brings it from something that you think is in your head to like, oh, okay, this could actually be quite serious. Yeah. And just to add on to that, like you said, um, it's better than like nothing. It's better than not going. Like in in Indigenous communities in Australia, which is like their communities that are lagging behind in terms of health and in terms of life expectancy, a huge barrier to access is the cultural awareness of the actual service that is provided. So a lot of times the services that are pro- provided may not align with cultural values or may they, they may be provided with a doctor that has no understanding of the cultural background. So take on testing, I think there is a downside to having such medical information be put into your hands and for you to be carrying that out because it increases the margin of error. But at the same time, if you're looking at a community that is unlikely to be going to the doctor as frequently, giving them a test that they can perform themselves that, you know, where they feel like they have control and the outcome is, you know, in their hands without needing to interact with someone that might be judgmental or might not have the right sort of awareness of situations um, would be really beneficial. So, yeah. 
so I mean, we've talked a lot about the positives of our projects. Obviously, I think we all like to think that we're doing something that is beneficial. Um, but I mean, certainly there are limitations. We talked about the the kind of lower accuracy than the standard pathology screening. But what are what do you think some other limitations of um, this style of at home testing is? Yeah, so I would say that one of the big things, at least for our test, is that there's there's still a not insignificant um, there at least there's still potentially a not insignificant cost barrier for ours. Your project in making them both cheaper and quicker uh, helps address that for sure. But at least for ours, there's still always the potential that the actual cost of the test could prove to be a barrier too. Fortunately that that's a that's a manageable problem that you can work to reduce there's also the danger we talked about how um false positives can um make folks actually like clog up services in part but there's also there's not an insignificant psychological cost to thinking you have cancer when you don't which is which is always something good to remember and there there's definitely workarounds to fix that but that's always uh something that we want to keep in mind. Yeah, I think for um, for cancer screening, that's definitely something that you have to think about. I guess I, I didn't think about that as much with our um, test because I guess, although COVID can be like pretty impactful in your life, it's for, for most people, it's not, uh, it, it's not, it's not as serious as something like skin cancer. So it doesn't have as much of a, a false positive doesn't have as much of a psychological um, effect. And same thing for most um, most infectious diseases that, that we, we would be testing for. Um, yeah, and I think, I mean, I've read recently, I think it's a bit of a topical subject, this subject of like over-screening for stuff like cancer. So I know that like if, there's a lot of emphasis in kind of modern preventative healthcare on screening for cancer, for prostate cancer, breast cancer, getting regular checks. But I think there are some people that, um, some some doctors, some people in the field that say that sometimes overscreening, if you if you find a tumor, it could be um, it it could it could end up being a tumor that if it wasn't causing any symptoms, which I guess it wouldn't if it was caught in just a reg regular screen, um, it could be that the treatment for that tumor, which could involve like chemotherapy, radiation, things that a lot of cancer treatments are really negatively impactful on your kind of overall health. Um, like if if that tumor wasn't causing any symptoms, it's potential that the, the treatment for that tumor is actually gives you a worse health outcome than just letting the tumor be. So I think that's maybe... Um, Another thing to think about with kind of anytime you're making cancer cancer testing really widely accessible, it could be people that are testing, like maybe over-testing moles, but I don't know. I think that's a difficult subject, yeah. On that note, there was, um, there's also a, at least in the US where we have our unique system of incentives that focuses on making paperwork and charging extra for everything, um, our setup, partially incentivizes doctors, right, to biopsy and test for cancers, even when it's likely that there isn't going to be a cancer. Uh, part of that, right, is because 
like comp like big private equity companies have been buying up healthcare providers. A lot of like public healthcare providers have been closing. And then within that, there's even more pressure on like private dermatology practices to spend more money. And so even if doctors aren't like malevolently, ha ha ha, I'm going to test someone for a cancer they don't have so I can like go out to a fancy dinner, there's still that unconscious incentive to be like in the back of their mind, like I need to, I need to make more money. And so I'm going to be a little bit more cautious in testing folks. And so there's always that danger to the test. Fortunately, I think that we can also structure our tests and use the really cool technologies that both our teams are looking at to address that problem too. If we use things like rapid tests to help people gauge their risk, we could also reduce unnecessary treatments too with lower cost tests. Like yes. one of the things that our project was looking at is there's about 60% of dermatologists, which is a really high number, say that they will biopsy patients for stuff that they know is in a melanoma. And part of that obviously is an evil. That's like trying to give patients peace of mind or helping them deal with stuff that's cosmetic. But part of that is also probably that unconscious incentive to, to spend more. And so if you can take a test in between and say, oh no, this mold is fine for maybe five bucks, then you don't have to spend a hundred dollars getting it removed, which is a really big benefit yeah. of both our technologies. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think this really speaks to that wider IGM, like idea of human practices is knowing that we have this world where we can't control how our um, technology and what we're creating will be implemented. Um, and having to consider that these scenarios where, you know, you, you could have all of the people like buying up the tests or like how, how it can can deal with or maybe mitigate what we can't control um so yeah it really is like we've talked so much today about things that we really can't do anything about you know we can't do anything about like our little tests aren't going to solve the border issues that we've talked about we can only consider how they would be applied um in their contexts and yeah I guess it's really considering that careful implementation, as you said, like picking when and where these tests are going to be available, who they're going to be available to, um, is going to be critical to keep that system streamlined and running. Yeah, and just wanted to mention, like, who knows, maybe one day these tests that we've been talking about for like the past several couple of minutes has maybe they will be picked up and actually turned into something which is like the beauty of what we're doing here with iGEM which is really cool okay thanks everyone for coming today that was a really interesting discussion I think we both learned a lot about like uh our different countries and our different tests and how those tests could be applied in those countries so um yeah thanks again for coming and having this interesting discussion um, and thanks everyone for listening to our podcast if you listen to this um you're very dedicated because it's quite long but um you hopefully you learned something hmm? what was that Owen? especially if you listen to the end we appreciate it yes yes thank you yes. bye everyone bye everyone bye, bye.